Moncrief with Energlaze on News Talk. This week marks the 85th anniversary of the handover of Spike Island in County Cork from British to Irish ownership. Spike Island, one of the infamous treaty ports, was a particular bugbear for a generation of Irish people. Joining me now to discuss this historic event is John Crotty, former CEO of Spike Island, who is now publishing a book on the island's history. Good afternoon to you, John. Good afternoon, Janet. Fantastic to have you on. Can you explain to us exactly why, to start with, why was Spike Island retained by the British when Ireland became the Free State? So that has its roots really in 1912, not just 921, Jared. Uh, a certain gentleman named Winston Churchill, you, you probably know the name. Know the dude, he yep. visited Cork Harbour as the head of the Admiralty in 1912, and he saw the importance of this port for British interests. Of course, his interest was very much the protection of the British Empire, uh, the, the Britain he was very proud of. So when it came to Irish independence in 1921 and the suggestion that they were going to lose these ports, a port that he had secured funding for, he had seen the development of, he was not going to go quietly. He was not going to let that happen. Mm. So was Michael Collins held personally responsible for losing these treaty ports? You know, I suppose the entire debating team was held responsible, if you like, for not just this, the treaty ports, which in many ways paled in comparison to the loss of these six counties in Northern Ireland. So they were almost an aside. But as you said earlier, a very frustrating aside. And it really did not sit well with a, a lot of Irish people to have the British Army remain on their doorstep and, and all that entailed. Mm. Now, I have a, a connection to Cove. I make a podcast with Sonia O'Sullivan about running and I've obviously been down there many, many times and it is just an unbelievable town, so steeped in Irish history. But I didn't see a huge respect for De Valera down there, even though I would have thought surely he was fundamental to getting Spike Island back. He was. Whatever anyone thinks of De Valera, you have to give him the credit for his role in returning the port. Uh, again, this is a man who had fought against the terms of that treaty quite passionately. So for him to have an opportunity to reverse some of those terms, he wasn't going to let that pass. And when the Irish uh, British Anglo trade war erupted in the 1930s, he ensured that this was part of that conversation. Right. So he just nudged things along and just wouldn't let it wouldn't let it lie, basically. Absolutely. You know, and there was there was a debate on the British side. It wasn't clear cut. You know, you had advice going into Neville Chamberlain, Chamberlain who ultimately is the uh, prime minister at the time. Uh, he is the man who makes the decision. He's getting advice that the port is redundant. But the likes of Winston Churchill, who have been there, who have secured funding for it and who also spot the, the dark clouds in the horizon. And that, of course, is Hitler, the menace of the Nazis in World War II. Uh, he is the one who did not want to let this go. So he and de Valera came to loggerheads. I mean, that is that is one of the things when I was preparing for this that I thought about, that had it not been handed over, there's very little doubt this port would have been hit, correct? I think massively so. You know, I do not believe Spike Island would be in existence today if the handover hadn't occurred, because we've seen repeated instances where the Nazis took opportunities to make examples mm. to other countries. Uh, you know, this was in Spain, this was in other nations, and particularly nations pursuing neutrality. You know, if the opportunity was there to say, you just watch yourself now because here's what we can do, that opportunity would have been taken. And Spike Island is a long way from the defences of the RAF over in mainland Britain. Getting it back, I mean, the accounts of 
no one going to sleep in Cove that night. It is a momentous day and obviously a town that had suffered so much loss when you consider the Titanic leaving from there. The grief of this and, you know, coming out of a very dark time. Can you tell us a little bit about the jubilation and the process of the actual day of handover? Absolutely. I mean, I think it says a lot about what people thought of that occasion, that it fell on the 11th of July. Uh, the 11th of July is also the day that the truce was announced. You know, that's the day the brave Irish Republicans fought the largest empire in the world and brought them to the, nego- the negotiating table. So, you know, monumental is the, the least word you could use to describe this occasion. So when the news comes 17 years later that some of the bitterness of that treaty is about to be reversed, uh, the whole nation wanted to be part of this. Mm. Uh, a crowd of 40,000 packed every single available train, car, any means of transport, horse and cart, I'd imagine, pouring into Cove in the late afternoon to be there for this occasion. Uh, it was also broadcast on state radio and it was also recorded by British uh, Pate, your early forerunner of the BBC. So we're not the only ones that saw this as a, a major achievement. Uh, Winston Churchill himself described it as, a, as an astonishing triumph for De Valera, what he had managed to secure. So wouldn't you want to be there if this was going on? Did I hear that number correctly? 40,000 people. 40,000 people and you've been to Gove, you know, yeah. it's not the largest town in Ireland either. So there are photographs from the day, you know, now in the registers of the Irish Examiner and every available space of the docks and the quays is just wedged with people. Mm. Uh, they didn't quite have the public safety that we do these days, so it could have been an uncomfortable, but a massively celebratory affair. And they're looking out across to Spike Island to see the tricolour raised. Uh, De Valera wouldn't go on the island until every little bit of Britishness had been removed or certainly every British person had been removed. Absolutely. You know, an amazing story. And you have to remember, David Ayer spent time in British prisons. You know, he's not a man in a rush to go back to a British prison, hmm. which, of course, Spike Island also was, as well as a fortress, uh, when there are British soldiers still present. So he stood back and let that happen. Uh, there were other men there, a man like James, Jim Ryan, who became a senator for Ireland. He was actually in prison in Spike Island in 1921. So, you know, would you uh, blame them for not wanting to rush back? to stand beside the British troops who previously incarcerated them on this very same island. So they left that to the army and there was a more a more minor ceremony, should we say, when the British flag came down. There were Irish troops there and it was presided over by Major Maher, an important, uh, if you like, figure in the island's history. He was the first ever Irish commander of the fort. He actually went on to manage Shannon Airport, of all things, uh, after its inception. So a, a little link there. Yeah, I mean, just the accounts of it are really stirring and really moving and you know you must feel the same connection that connection that I'm talking about here that when you read these accounts of people saying that it was the most exciting interesting and thrilling day of their entire life on Cove people just hugged themselves and everyone around them the greatest triumph was to see the tricolour flying over the Royal Cork Yacht Club great satisfaction this is I mean your your book that you're putting together on this is that Are you trying to capture all of that within the pages? 
Absolutely. You know, it's one of the very few subjects that's getting two chapters in my book because it's that interesting. It's that historic. And we're blessed that there are so many accounts, not just from the Irish side. And we're lucky to have accounts from the soldiers who were there, from the residents who lived on the island. And they're mixed emotions many times because they were used to the British being there for such a long time. Uh, but also from the British side, you know, the Churchill element, the BBC, you know, even the Derry Journal and in Belfast and Northern Ireland's been on this. So a really, really special day in our history that deserves its telling. Is Spike Island where uh, RT make that uh, Hell Week? Is, is that still being made there? Yes, they've done two series out there now and uh, how appropriate. Uh, yeah. It was often called Ireland's Hell back in the 1850s and for those Republican prisoners in 1921. So it's getting a bit of a reuse and I don't think any of those people who fought to free Ireland would have any uh, exception with that, that now we make it our own and we make it what it is. A bit like the um, the post boxes or Nelson's column that gets smashed and destroyed just to wipe anything. Is there any British presence there left? Is it, does it, any of the infrastructure still there reminiscent of the empire? Absolutely. We're very fortunate that the majority of the buildings that the British built would still be there. Uh, they put huge investment into this, Janet. I mean, it's possibly the most expensive building in Irish history that was started in 1804 with the fortress. And of course, their mark is everywhere. You'll find the uh, insignia, if you like, of the various army regiments in various walls and guns and placements that they put. And of course, now Spike Island is a national monument. This is an important part of the story. You know, the whole island is now a museum. So very important we preserve that and it tells its own story. Well, the 85th anniversary, the handover of Spike Island in Cork is just one part of the book that John Crotty is publishing. John, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Great to talk to you. And you, thank you. Moncrief, weekdays at 2 pm with Anna Glaze on News Talk.